With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today we have a special treat for you a great interview with Travis Talbot, food and beverage specialist, and his right hand, Jess Freight. You don't want to miss this. Welcome to another edition of Hospitality Property School. I am your instructor, Jerry McPherson. Travis has been on the hospitality industry front lines for decades and crafted a lifestyle allowing him to be boots on the ground. He observes things others don't see, connects concepts people don't think about, and understands nuances others don't notice. If you're looking for some fun stories, great observations, amazing insights you can take and use at your property, You'll want to listen to this interview. All that being said, let's jump into this. Our interview today is going to be with Travis Talbot and Jess Freight. And now when it comes to food and drink, the food and drink industry, Travis has traveled, seen, and done it all. And we're very thankful that he has taken the time to come and chat with us and share some of his experiences. So um, if you guys are ready, Travis and uh, Jess, uh, let's jump into this. Yeah, Jerry, it's great. And, and, and thanks for making time for us. We appreciate it. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. So, Travis, as I was, you were born in Alberta. Alberta I was. Canada. I was. Yeah, and actually very few people actually know where that is, especially if you're talking to Americans. I usually have to just say I'm, I was born close to the Montana border. But um, <laughs> yeah. but actually, I grew up in um, a farming community just outside of Lethbridge, Alberta. So uh, my family has a long history of being ranchers, farmers, rodeo cowboys. And so I grew up in that space. But my mom was always in hospitality. So we kind of my brother and I, who's also a chef. We grew up, uh, I think nowadays it would be against child labor laws, but we grew up um, doing, earning our stripes, it was, it was called, but I think it's called free labor nowadays. But uh, so, but we, we ended up working for our mom in a diner. Then when she, you know, she worked in some restaurants, we worked there. Then she worked in fine dining and we worked for her there as busters and so forth. So um, kind of a mixed background. So grew up in Lethbridge, uh, grew up on the farm, then spent a lot of time working in our mom's restaurants. And then uh, I went to university, actually, in Calgary. So most people know where Calgary is yeah. um, for, for veterinary sciences. And then um, but I was working uh, on Electric Avenue. I don't know, Jerry, if you remember the famous oh, I, or, I, in, I remember or infamous Electric Avenue in Calgary. Well, school and that uh, that strip didn't didn't merge too well. So I ended <laughs> up uh, <laughs> I ended up getting kicked out of school and then uh, ended up following hospitality and now I've become what they you know what they say is a lifer. I've never left. Right. So hospitality has been in your blood since you were very young. Absolutely. So I remember stocking shelves in the basements for my mom at probably about the age of seven and then washing dishes since the age of nine. And then my grandmother was also in the hospitality industry. She was also a server in the old Wolco diner. I don't even remember that. Yeah, Wolco, yeah. Wolco used to be a department store and they used to have a diner inside the restaurant, you know, with the, the milkshakes and the grilled cheese sandwiches and stuff. Actually, so, they were great. Yeah, it was awesome. If they if somebody could recreate that today, I'd go, I'd go, I'd go work with that model, right? Yeah, yeah. So so uh, in Lethbridge, yeah. did you work in the did you say you worked in a bar or in a Lethbridge? I worked in multiple bars, Jerry. So I worked in restaurants for my mom. And then when I was in high school, 
there ended up being a bar built right behind the high school football field. Well, I managed to get a job there underage as a waiter. And um, they had, so it was a restaurant attached to a cafe, attached to a nightclub. And then one night, the nightclub manager came over, just assumed I was of age. And he says, hey, you want a bartend? We're short a guy. And I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. Didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was three years underage. <laughs> right? no and uh, I, I took the gig. So that was my first nightclub gig. And then it was my Tom Cruise you know, era. So when I was bartending there and flipping all the bottles and doing like the topless, you know, <laughs> ladies nights on Thursday nights, a few of the other bars around town came to recruit me. So I ended up working in four different bars at the same time when I was in high school uh, bartending. Uh, so yeah, it was good. <laughs> yeah. For those who don't know, the drinking age in Alberta is 18. Yeah. So I was bartending when I was 15. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. It's, it's okay to talk about now because all those places are gone. <laughs> right? So, so tell me a little more about your time in Calgary. What was it like? Calgary, was, Calgary was awesome. You've been there. It's, it's yeah. an incredible, it's an incredible city. And for me, it was the best of both worlds because I was working in hospitality, obviously working on electric Avenue, which was like Canada's equivalency of the Las Vegas strip. Right. Yeah. And, okay. in, its, yeah. In, in its heyday. I worked for an amazing guy uh, who you know, took me under his wing and kind of showed me that the hospitality industry was more than just booze, brawls, and babes. And um, it, and then also I got to play cowboy. So I worked for the Calgary Stampede Board for 10, 11 years when I was there. So I, you know, I'd work the infield. I'd be moving all the livestock around. I would work chuck wagons. And so I had the best of both worlds. Like And Calgary at the time, you know, they're going back – Jeez, when did the Flames win the Cup? 88. So, Indeed. yeah, and I was still under, I was just finishing high school, <laughs> right? So here I was working on Electric Avenue. I was working for the rodeo, which had some prestige, you know, in, in terms of the cowboy world. And the city was on fire. Like the, the Flames had won the Cup. The oil and gas industry was at a peak. So we got to see all these American Express black cards when we were working. And then, and also mm. even then, Jerry, it's, in, it's a casual town. Everybody's in a pair of Wranglers and a cowboy hat and everyone's how you doing. And, and so it was, it was a really good time to be there. And like I said, I was very fortunate to work under the wing of one of the kingpins of the hospitality game there at the time, Claude LaMonica. And uh, I got a really good education more than just a lot of good experiences. Right. So was it in Calgary? You got the nickname T-Bone? Well, no, I got that from a very um, mean grandfather. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my grandfather is the equivalent of Clint Eastwood or, you know, Charles Bronson. And he was a, a rodeo legend. And, uh, you know, he's, he was built pretty tough. So in the summer times, we used to have to follow him around to all the rodeos and, his way of showing admiration and affection was abuse. <laughs> so oh, we'd be sitting, we'd be, well, not nothing physical. Just, you yeah. know, he, he was always testing your metal, as they say. So we were at a rodeo one time in Pincher Creek and we were sitting around and I had awful teeth. You know, we, we weren't a wealthy family. So I had such bad teeth and he'd had a few crown and cokes and all of a sudden he makes this cracks this joke around the campfire around all of his cowboy buddies. He's like, Look at this kid. He goes, we're going to start calling him T-Bone because he, he can eat a steak off of both sides at the same time. <laughs> so because he said it in that audience with all my family and extended members and uh, a family, the T-Bone stuck. Right. And then it just oh, every, everyone, everyone seems to think it has something to do with culinary. But no, it's, it's my grandfather making fun of my bad dental work. <laughs> oh, nice. Now, for those who don't know, can you explain what... Uh... How did you phrase it? Uh, what your grandfather drank? Crown Royal and Coke. Right? Yeah, Crown and Coke. So that, yeah. Crown and Coke is a famous Canadian drink, right? That yeah. one was Seagram 7, but I haven't seen Seagram 7 on a shelf anywhere in ages. <laughs> but uh, And actually, it was funny. It was you were considered living the good life if you were drinking Crown Royal back in those days, right? It Absolutely. was the, it, it was the top shelf. And um, what's hilarious now is I went back to Stampede a few years ago and you know where Crown Royal has caught on, what audience has really kind of um, embraced it is the Japanese. Really? Yeah. Actually, you can Crown find it. I'm in Germany right now and you can find it in specialty stores here. 
Yeah. So yeah, it's I you know I haven't had one since the eighties, but uh, <laughs> it's but yeah, it was it was funny. That was the drink of choice of my grandfather. So after Calgary, I saw that you hit the road. You start yeah, telling. Yeah. So so what, I told, I got, well, I got kicked out of school. Well, I got kicked out of multiple schools. I got kicked out of Mount Royal College. I got kicked out of uh, University of Calgary. So that was the end of the whole veterinary sciences aspirations. And then um, I was working in this total dive honky tonk called Bronco Billies. And it was literally out of the Blues Brothers movie with the chicken wire and, you know, rawhide playing 24-7 and stuff. But it was, it was a very neat place. It was, we used to refer to it um, as the cast of working with the cast of Saturday Night Live. Like it, was, it was something else. But uh, one of the guys I bartended with there, he just came up with an epiphany one night. And he's like, hey, we should travel and we should go see the world. And I'm like, well, if we're going to do that, we might as well apply our bartending trades. And so we went to um, we went to the school in Florida. Um, it was a quote unquote cruise ship school, which was quote unquote a ripoff. And uh, we ended up we ended up getting stranded in Fort Lauderdale, living in a motel with a bunch of English guys, like 10 of us uh, to a no to a two bedroom motel. And uh, we ended up uh, jumping on the cruise lines. So I ended up working for Norwegian Cruise Lines for a while, the SS Norway. Um, did that for a bit. And the cruise line industry, as you know, coming from tourism, was a way different beast back in the day. It, oh, it, yeah. It wasn't a good lifestyle for two 18-year-old kids, right? So, but we did it. We did it. We saw some things and we built up some scar tissue. And then, honestly, Jerry, ever since then, I've really just been nomadic before it was even you know, a coin term, you know, actually where I grew up, nomads had to do with the, uh, the hell's angels. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, we didn't use that term a whole lot back then, but yeah, you know, my mom used to say a wanderer or a vagabond, but so I've lived all over the world, lived in Boston multiple times, LA, Miami, all, all through Canada, um, lived in the Netherlands for a while. Um, in the last three years I've lived in Bermuda, I've coasted, uh, not Costa Rica, sorry, Dominican Republic, um, all throughout Mexico. And then, as I was telling you earlier, I'm now planning to head to Dublin and I'm going to spend some time in Spain and Portugal and Italy. So um, I would say that the one thing, like, yeah, and Jess, poor Jess, she has to schedule all these things around everywhere I'm going. And, and, and I never give her every note, any notice of where I'm headed. But um, the one good thing that came for, for, for me personally out of COVID was all of a sudden all these countries started to lighten up on their visa restrictions, right? And, and now that, you know, the gig worker or the remote worker, the freelance worker, whatever terminology you want to use, they're embracing those audiences because they've lost tourism and so forth. So I've been applying for any visa that pops up in my newsfeed and, and I'm getting them accepted. And now our clients prior to COVID, and you probably experienced this as a consultant as well, they, re, they wanted so much to fa- they wanted so much FaceTime. They wanted so much meet and greet time. They, you know, like, like Jerry, you, you could say, listen, I've been to your hotel property twice. I've been to 10,000 hotels. I kind of got a grasp on what you need. And we've made our introductions and I've seen the actual property. So I, I think I've got some insight or I can work with this. And it needs to be, no, 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 you got to visit some more. You got to come back next weekend. We're now post-COVID. They only want you to visit once or twice and then the rest of it, they want to do digitally or they anticipate you can do it online. So all that's just led to, you know, kind of fueling my Peter Pan syndrome of uh, he's going to keep traveling. Right. Nice. Jess, I'm curious, how did you land a job working with Travis? Do you have uh, some sadomasochist uh, wish list? (laughs) (laughs) It was actually a very small world. So um, I got it through my mom. Um, one of her coworkers actually had known Travis um, working at a coffee shop. He would come in, you know, do his remote working from a, a coffee shop. And um, my mom's colleague, Allison, had, you know, they kind of had a re- little bit of a relationship, like just from him coming in, um, him ordering, you know, his coffees and doing work all day. She was curious and and asked him, you know, like, what do you do for a living? And he kind of told her about his nomadic lifestyle. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Travis, but you guys kind of kept in touch. And um, he had put out a Facebook post, I think it was right 
back in 2020, I think, or yeah. 20, yeah. right yeah. after 2019. COVID happened. Yeah. 2019. And um, my mom was like, totally, I'm a huge foodie. And um, he, Travis just had put it out and was um, like, you know, I'm looking for some, some work. If you know any foodies around, um, like, let me know. And my mom actually had approached me and was like, hey, you know, my friend Allison um, has this job. I was unemployed. I had quit my job previously working in sales. I was behind a desk and I hated that. You know, I love, I'm a people person. I love going out, meeting new people and socializing. So this came on my plate and it, you know, I was out of a job. So Travis was in Boston and I reached out and actually funny enough, I was sick with COVID when I, when I had um, reached out to Travis and he was like, do you want to meet up? I was like, actually, I'm, I'm actually very sick. I'm in quarantine right now, but I can, you know, when I'm out, I can come in, we can have a coffee together and get to know, get to know each other. And really that's how it started. And um, I've been with Travis for a year now. Um, Actually last week was my one year with the company and Travis and all of his adventures and um, couldn't be happier. I'm, I'm very, you know, lucky to have landed this, this gig and have been learning, you know, all of his trips and to like tricks into everything about like, you know, the hospitality industry. So, yeah. So you're based in Boston. Yes. And, and Jerry, I didn't know that she was unemployed when I hired. This is news to me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that's revealing. Yeah, that is revealing. <laughs> that's funny. So um, I heard, was it after the uh, terrorist attack in Boston? Mm-hmm. Travis, you were involved with the project that really took off. Can you tell us about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, as you know, that was a really weird time. And actually, I got yeah. some wild stories from that. So... We, at the time, I was working for a company called Red Door Hospitality and Red Door Trucks. I was working for a niche contractor here in town who uh, mostly works on brownstones and restorations and so forth. And he, he's a huge foodie and he's from Cornell. And um, he actually went to school for um, hotel management. And so he wanted to um, diversify his portfolio and he wanted to start building restaurants because he knew all these chefs around town. Um, he knew that the, you know, the creative side of building a restaurant was something that excited him. So we started this new company called Red Door Hospitality. And then the, the following week, he decided he wanted, he wanted to start building food trucks. So then we started doing Red Door trucks. And so I was designing food trucks. I was designing restaurants. Um, working with John, we probably did a total of 25 restaurants here in Boston in a course Ooh. of five, five years. And then multiple, multiple food trucks and so forth. So anyways, I was working in that space and we were fortunate enough that John had a really good relationship to work with Ming Tsai, celebrity chef Ming Tsai, mm-hmm. um, and as well as Ken, Ken Oranger, who's just a legend in this town and in New York, um, both of them iron chefs. So we ended up um, building, John had already done some work with Ken, and then we ended up building um, Ming's second restaurant, Blue Dragon, and then kind of just built a relationship. We were also building restaurants on Boylston Street for a couple of different restaurateurs, and that week... I got sick. Um, we, did, we now know what it is, but at the time we didn't know, but I was having all these issues and it turns out it was Lyme disease. And so I, I got sick. I didn't go to work that day at the day of the bombing, but we were building a restaurant where the bomb went off, one of the two bombs. So I really? was supposed to be at that property that day. And luckily I was in the hospital. And then, so that all happened. And then pretty crazy stuff in the city Boston's such a resilient, such an amazing, such a kind of a, a city of camaraderie. And all of a sudden, Ming and um, Ming and uh, Ken and a few other chefs said, hey, we, we need to do something. We need to do something to support the healing. We need to do something to turn the mood around. Um, so they came up with this idea is we're going to we're going to throw dinner for the city. Right. So through Ming's connections and um, John and um, Ken, they reached out to the Red Sox owners. They reached out to the Patriots. They reached out to all of their team and media. And we ended up putting together this little kind of um, this little niche SWAT team of hospitality professionals and marketers and so forth came up with the concept called Boston Bites Back. And we put together 100 chefs 
from 100, 100 chefs and 100 sous chefs. So it couldn't just be a line cook. It had to be your main guys, your main talent, all the celebrity chefs in Boston. And we took over Fenway for a night and we raised just shy of a million dollars. And it Whoa. was 100% pastor. So at the time, there was lots of people doing some great things. Like there was mus- musicians that were doing concerts. There was comedians that were doing shows. There was just a lot of people doing a lot of good things. But we were proud to say that we were the only team or the only organization that raised that level of money. And it was 100% pass through. So, and I, we, um, we organized that in 16 days. Whoa. Right? Yeah. From the day That's that Ming and Ken said, Hey, we're going to do this. And we've made a few calls and John said, Trav, you're going to join the team and you're going to quarterback. Um, Cause Ming and, 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 um, Ming and Ken knew all the chefs. So they were going to put together all the chefs and make everybody commit. But then there was all the logistics of we're taking over Fenway. Um, We had to do approve all the menus. And as you know, Jerry, working with a hundred A-list top chefs, there were some dynamics to be managed, (laughs) right? We had the website, we had the social media, we had the PR, we had the marketing, and then there was just a straightforward execution. 16 days from the day that Ming and Ken said, Hey, we're going to do this for the city to the day that we, we hosted, I think it was 5,000 people, right? That's incredible. Yeah. So that's, that was definitely something that uh, I'm proud of in my career. I'm, I'm glad I was able to be a participant and I got the tap on the shoulder to kind of help quarterback it. And it was just an amazing, it was an amazing event, right? Wow. So you've worn so many different hats in the hospitality industry. Has that helped you with your perspective? I like to think so. I, I, a couple of things, and, and Jess will speak to this too, is when we're presenting to um, potential clients or prospects and, and, and if we're up against, you know, because we're, we're just a small outfit. After when COVID hit, I used to have a team of 10 with Change Network. And then COVID obviously changed our model and how we're diversifying. So there's really Jess, myself, my brother, who's also a chef, and then we have one other guy on the periphery who is a culinary instructor, like Team Canada kind of culinary kind of level. And so we're, we're pretty small. We're pretty nimble and agile. But when we're going up against agencies and when it's their, their RFP versus RFP and everyone's doing their PowerPoint presentations, we often get asked, like, you guys are a pretty small outfit. Why would we pick you? And one of my responses is, I guarantee you there's no one at this table no one that's giving a presentation that has as much experience and as many aspects of hospitality as I do. The only thing I haven't done, Jerry, and I never will because it doesn't interest me in the very least, is I haven't been an accountant, but everybody's got a bean counter, right? <laughs> and I yeah. know how to read, I know how to read the statement sheet and the R, no, I, I, I can get through all the financials and the performance, but it just doesn't interest me to sit down and, and come up with the de- the numbers, right? But I've done everything from wash dishes, to work in hotels, to work in catering. I was a bouncer for years, which was ridiculous. Um, I've done the culinary side of all of this. And this is primarily what we do for a lot of our clients with change specifically is culinary development, culinary strategy. Um, I now can pretty much design a kitchen from top to bottom, other than, you know, bringing the engineers in who actually have to figure out the CFMs and air loads and all that stuff. Um, we, We now I can design a restaurant for you, no matter what concept you want. I've worked all over the world. Um, I've done the bartending. So there's managing front of house, back of house, working in hotels. So I I don't say it as a boast, but I say it with a high degree of confidence that I'll put my resume up against anybody in any of these agencies um, when they say, hey, we've got more experience than Travis. I'm like, no, you don't. (laughs) They just don't. And and from all perspectives. And so I, I think it's, for one, it gives me a certain level of confidence. It gives me a certain level of being able to see things from multiple angles and a bit of humility. I remember what it's like to be, you know, the second line cook. I remember what it's like to get stuck in the dish pit for 14 hours and all the bartenders and servers were out front partying your asses off. Um, I remember what it's like to be shorthanded with staff. Like during the Olympics, nobody wanted to work. So I've worked, I've worked two Olympics, right? Uh, that's two, 1988 in Calgary and then 2010 in Whistler. And, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. And then like, you know, 
that those nobody wanted to work during those times. So I remember it's like being a manager working 20 hour days and doing clothes opens and you're on breakfast shift and then you're sleeping in the cooler before you do lunch service. Like, so I, I do think it's given me some unique perspective and it's also given me a pretty, a pretty well-equipped toolbox. Right. I'm curious. Okay. Your perspective has been fascinating. You've must have, you must've had some, you mentioned one gentleman in Calgary, but you must've had some other great mentors. Yes. As well. And that's what I kind of attribute to like, everyone's like, why would you be, why did you become a lifer? Like, well, for one, I didn't have any other education. And then I don't, I don't know if I told you this, Jerry, I did quit hospitality for a while after I owned a nightclub in Calgary, hugely successful nightclub, hugely poorly written partnership agreement. <laughs> so very, it was a terrible, it was the best and terrible experience. And then, you know, at that time we were dealing with all kinds of gangs and all the issues that go along with a nightclub. So I decided to quit hospitality for a while because I was saying the hospitality world was becoming the hostility world. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I left and I went to play pro cowboy for two years. (laughs) So I was a bull rider and a rodeo clown living out of the back of a pickup truck. Of course you were. Yeah. Doing all (laughs) all the pumpkin roller rodeos around. Um, but so that, that aside, and I didn't, I came back in this year, but I, I've, I've been incredibly blessed that I've worked for the timing has always worked out well. And the people I've worked for have always been amazing people. So I've never really had a bad boss. I've always had people that had really high EQ before that was even a term. I've always had people that looked at this profession as a profession, not as just a, a catch-all, you know, for, oh, you, you can't do anything else, well, then you can come work here, right? Um, so they, and then I had people that they, they felt their responsibility and they felt um, they got reward out of mentoring. So I've, I've just been fortunate. So I worked with a guy in Calgary um, when I started young who said, hey, listen, this is a career if you stick to it. It's not just all about, you know, the partying and, and the glitz and glam. And then when I moved to Vancouver, I ended up working for a gentleman that uh, they used to call, he used to own a place called Richards on Richards or Dicks on Dicks. It oh, was, yeah. cons- yeah. he was considered the studi- Studio 54 of Canada. Yeah. And he was partners with Brian Adams. He was partners with, um, what's the legendary producer from Canada? The guy's a uh, very antagonistic radio personality. I'd have to get back to you on that one, but so he and, and Loverboy was a part of the uh, investment group. Like, so you know, it was the A-listers. It was the uh, Studio Fifty Four, and I got on with him. Writing employee manuals was my job. Like, here's how you open the coat check. Here's how you close the bar at the end of the evening. Here's how you receive goods. And then he took me on board. When I started with them, he had three restaurants and this nightclub. By the time I was 26, I was overseeing 25 properties in three provinces. And his deal, which was very unique, and I'm going to pull this on Jess at some time, is he's like, listen, you're probably not going to make a lot of money working for me. He goes, I just don't pay managers like that. And he says, but I will pay for all your education. He says, you can leverage all of our relationships with vendors in any which way you want. And he says, I'll give you the keys to the city. He says, you can be Vinny Vegas all you want, as long as you're doing the work, as long as you're not breaking into the rules. And he didn't pay me. Like, I think I was, you know, I'm running 25 venues across three provinces. I know what the top line numbers were because I was responsible for reviewing P&Ls. And I'm making a junior manager salary, but I was living a $200,000 a year lifestyle. Yeah, like, that's gold. Oh, man. And then and then education. So I, I went to all the vendors and said at the time, like they used to do, everybody used to offer some level of education, whether it was beer technology, like how to set up a beer draft system, whether it was cooking classes, whether it was marketing um, initiatives and stuff like that. Like, like, what was his name? Jim Sullivan. Remember, remember Jim Sullivan? Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, he was a marketing guru. I, I think I took every seminar he ever he ever had. And it was all paid for. Right. And so it's just amazing. And I also got my knuckles wrapped enough when I was doing things like, obviously my head got too big for a while at some stage. Right. And so he would always rein me in. And then of course there's all the vices of the game and I would, I explored all of those and um, he would rein me in. So, and then when I moved to Boston, I ended up working for a family that's they're iconic in town here. So like the black Rose, Cleary's, all these venues, 
this these families have been this family has been in the hospitality industry for 40 years and i ended up coming on board with them and the old boy he's, he's in his 80s now but your classic old hard ass irishman he taught me so much about how to sustain a business how to future proof it how to protect it so it wasn't just about the daily revenue it was about okay now you can buy back some of your mortgage. Now we can buy a piece of the property. Now we can do like, he, he just, he was an amazing guy in terms, because his whole thing was legacy. He goes, I build legacy brands and I build businesses that my grandchildren's grandchildren are going to be working in, right? Oh, so, nice. Yeah, so it was, like I said, this knock on wood, um, I've had some really good, really good mentors along the way. And then I've had, I've also met some really terrible people along the way, but those are mostly clients. <laughs> yeah. 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 So not me. All my clients no. are amazing. Oh, you know what? I've been lucky. And where we are right now, like the space that Jess and I are working in right now, what a different world and mindset that the resorts have. And you know that, and again, from hotel years to the rest, like, you know, the restaurant industry has taken a black eye through all of the, the exposure for COVID, but it's true. Like there's a lot, there's a lot of merit to a lot of those horror stories in restaurants, but you don't hear about them as much. And yet I haven't seen as much of like, um, that level of toxicity in the resort world, mm -hmm. in the hotel world. So it, it, all of our clients right now, I, I couldn't say a bad thing about any of them. Um, but along the way, like when I worked in Vegas, I worked for a couple of entertainers they wanted to be restaurateurs and that wasn't that was no bueno <laughs> so, with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Wow. So, everything you've gotten in your career, all the mentors you've met, all the advice you can give, do you think it's important to give back? I think it's essential. So, I don't know if you got it in the materials that Jess forwarded, but I also went on a little bit of a Michael Landon walkabout, my mom used to call it. Mm -hmm. And so at one point in time, I gave away, I walked away from the velvet ropes, so to speak. I walked away from a COO position. This is right after the 2010 Olympics uh, with a restaurant company that was some fairly deep pockets and backed by a lot of celebrities and A-listers and uh, athletes. And I just gave it all to charity, grabbed a backpack, um, figured out social media and went on the road. And I didn't actually know what my intention was other than the fact that when I told some people like, oh, I'm going to go do Habitat for Humanity for six months in Costa Rica, every single one of my family, colleagues in the industry and peers, I was like, you're not going to last three weeks without you know, a, a mimosa in your hand and access to you know, all the restaurants and stuff. So I literally went homeless what was supposed to be a six-month journey ended up being almost a five-year expedition. Wow. And I raised millions of dollars for various organizations. I did everything from working with at-risk youth and street kids. Um, I worked in women's shelters, like, you know, the women's place in Boston. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked with um, no-kill shelters, a horse rescue. Like, I did everything, everything you can think of. And um, my whole goal was to kind of find uh, a, a meaning or the purpose of hospitality other than being the service industry. I used to hate that. Um, my mom used to say, you're not, you're not in the service industry. You're supposed to be in the of service industry, right? Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be, be oh, of like service. This. And so, yeah, so that's so. And then through that, that well, it was four years, eight months, give or take through all that, I kind of came up with a model and it was actually something that we, most restaurateurs are already, we're already doing. Like how many restaurants are supporting the local kids baseball team? And how many times are they hosting the fundraisers and giving away the appetizers? How many times are they um, the first ones that sign up for any community initiative or undertaking? Well, we basically, we, I came up with this model and it was like, an ROE, ROI. So ROI, everyone knows, but ROE was return on effort. And then I can prove 
through case studies, through experience, through testimonials that if you're a restaurant, if you're in the hospitality industry and you make giving back to the community and sometimes community starts in-house, if you're, if you're making that part of your business model, it's the best marketing you can ever do, right? And never mind the culture, the EQ, all those things that come with it that should be, you know, in, the, in a hospitality ventures DNA, it, it begins to grow organically, right? And then it starts to build your business like legacy planning. So people now talk about future proofing. To me, that sounds a little bit too clinical and a little bit too strategic, as opposed to if you're just giving back to your community, if you're supporting the local soup kitchen, if you're supporting the local ball team, if you if your staff volunteers at the local SPCA, the residuals from that that are organic and authentic, you can't beat them. So whenever I work with hospital groups, especially in the restaurant side, I'm always like, what's your ROI model? And they're like, okay, here's our financial strategic model. I'm like, what's your ROE? Like, what's your giving model? And they're always stumped. And then I'm like, don't just write checks. Don't just throw the fundraisers and give away the sliders. Like figure out a model where the whole community knows that's part of your, your concept, your personality. Uh, and I, I've proven it time and time and time I again like that, that, that if you are giving and giving starts in-house. So back to, I was actually mentioning the other day, I'm like, oh, did you guys have staff meal today? Did you have shift meal, family meal, whatever your vernacular is? And everyone's like, what is that? I'm like, my God, man, how can you work in the hospitality industry as a manager or as an operator owner and, and have that feeling that somebody might have gone home hungry, right? Uh, I'm like, that's just crazy. Or nowadays, too, like you got a kid that's going to put in a 14-hour shift work on the line. He's going to get buried, and then he never had a chance to eat. And then you don't send him home with food. You don't feed him before his shift. Like, it just makes no sense to me. But And so now that's starting to come back into play where – Everyone seems to think that the the talent recruitment nowadays has to come down to, well, we'll pay a dollar more if the guy across the street's paying 50 cents more. And it's just, that's that's not a sustainable model and it always no. ends up in a terrible place. But if all of a sudden you said, hey, we believe in healthcare, we believe in, hey, we know, we know how to write a schedule. How about that one, Jerry? Remember back in the day <laughs> when the most important person in the world was the guy that wrote the schedule. And it was the most important thing to you saying, okay, I've got my kids on this day. Hey, I've got classes on these days. Um, if somebody could write a schedule and accommodate your life, that job was worth way more than the $2 more the guy across the street was paying. So um, to, to, to me, that all falls under that same umbrella of giving and consideration and courtesy, which to me is hospitality, right? Nice. Guest experience. I'm a strong believer in the guest experience in the hospitality industry. And I think it's going to be even more important post-COVID. And I want to get your opinion on that. I agree with you a million percent. And I think before an operator even, beside, even engages an architect, even does an RFP to designers, the very first thing they should be doing is sitting down and defining the guest experience, not just using the word experience just generically with broad strokes, like, like using the word subway fresh, nothing's fresher just because it was made in front of you, right? Is what are you hoping to deliver to the guest? How are you gonna do that in terms of mechanics, in terms of stimulus? And then what are you hoping the outcome to be? And I, I look at the word outcome is when someone leaves our restaurants, our ski resorts, our hotel, what is the emotional resonance that they have? And what's their memory? Because all of that's going to dictate whether they beat the hell out of you on Yelp or whether they have any inclination to be a repeat visitation, right? Or to become a loyal ambassador. So I, I think the guest experience should be line one, page one of the um, business plan. And it has to be articulated and it has to be tactical, meaning that you can't just have a strategy, which is a philosophy or an intention. There's got to be the mechanics. You know, like one of my favorite things is I always sometimes define a really good hotel by the soap in the men's bathroom because we always get ripped off. You know, the girls always come back smelling like a million dollars and the guys come back smelling like Ajax, right? And so, you know, it's, it's, that's, but that's part of the guest experience. And, and, and I agree with you that it should have always been that way. And it got a little sloppy in the industry for a while. And I think COVID is, has been a catalyst to, to, to making people think about that again as a priority. 
And then, you know, one of the things that Jess usually shares with me a lot is we can go through a thousand websites and we research constantly when we're doing work for clients from different markets. We try to find like models or who's the leading chef or who's driving, what operators driving, like is Danny Meyer in charge of that market or is David Chang the hottest thing or, you know what I mean? We look at all those kind of things. And when we read their websites, it's like, okay, a PR company wrote this. I, yeah. I can, I recognize, and actually, actually, Jerry, that's one thing I didn't tell you is I also worked in a PR and marketing agency for a while just to figure out how things worked behind the curtain, right? But we, Jess and I can smell it out right away. We're like, this is written by a PR company. This is written by the owner. This is written by the chef. And you can just tell by the language or what they're trying to convey. And it's all bullshit. It's none of it is actually going to tell me what I'm going to experience in terms of the vibe, what I'm going to be putting in my mouth, how they define their menu in terms of theme, you know, what, what their cocktail program is like. So what the experience is, why am I leaving my home? Why am I getting my credit card ready to hand over to you if you haven't defined all of those elements for me, the experience, right? And like, it's more than thread counts on, on, a, on a, you know, a set of sheets. It's more than, I don't know, you're using Lily coffee. All those things matter, but tell me what the overall, what am I getting from you? And I, and I agree with you. And I wish more operators would make that top priority. Yeah, you're right. Most that I start dealing with don't even consider that. Or they don't know how to define it, right? Th that, yeah. Right? So All right. It's too oh, go ahead. I just no, say it's too, too often, I think the experience is defined in the operator's mind is it's defined by the aesthetics of the room. Like we've got this terrazzo floor and we've done this beautiful handcrafted mahogany bar top and all of those things matter. Everything matters. But I'm like, okay, but how does that contribute to the experience? How does that contribute to, is that a stimulus and is it the right stimulus? And what is it going to, how is it going to resonate with the guests? So, and then before that even is, isn't our staff, our first guests, like how is the staff room look? Do they have a place to put their bags when they're coming between school and work? Um, are we feeding them before their shifts? So they feel like, great. And here's another one that we always recommend to operators is, you've seen this over the years. I remember when I worked for really good chefs and that it was, you can have anything you want on the menu, period. Like when you come to work, I don't care if you have the filet, you're only going to get it once, but I don't care if you have the, lo the lobster surf and turf is everything on the menu is 50% off because how can you sell it if you don't know what it tastes like, what it looks like, how it's presented, exactly. right? And also what a terrible thing to think that we work in food and beverage and somebody potentially is going home hungry or they're doing a 14 hour shift with no, you know, no nutrition and no, no calories in their system. So I think that the guest experience also starts with the, the staff. And then when the staff get it, they're going to pass it on. They're going to pass it forward, so to speak, right? Now, so, do you think it's important for all staff to be able to, okay, for example, try the menu? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, that's like, what I say. I say all the staff from management Right to the dishwasher. Hey, if the exactly. dishwasher, if the dishwasher one day goes, I'm going to treat myself to a tomahawk, you give it to them. And let me tell you something. I've heard this argument about costs and, you know, this, that, yeah. and the other. I'm like, you show me your sales mix. Give me your spreadsheets or your P mix, whatever the language you want to use. And I'm going to show you how many staff meals get put out and how it doesn't move the needle at all on your cost of goods. But what it does move the needle on is, um, employees' well-being, a place that feel comfortable and feel respected to work in. And now, like, if you owned a Ferrari shop, you wouldn't let the salesman drive the Ferrari, right? Yeah. How, is he how is he supposed to sell it if he doesn't know how it handles, right? So I agree with you 100% that everyone deserves to eat and everyone deserves to eat whatever they want within reason. Like, you know, if all of a sudden yeah. T-Bone Travis comes in and every day he's ordering, you know, the cushy oysters and, you know, the Wagyu burger, like, yeah, that guy needs to get reined in, but no. <laughs> no, it's true. I had the experience, actually, it was in Boston. It was in a hotel in Boston where one of the housekeepers now, I used to go to this property quite often, and she came up and she said, my manager told me to go check out, and it was an exhibit at a, a gallery, 
And I was bringing a group in to Boston at that time. And she said, it was wonderful. My manager paid for it. Yeah. And I think your people would really like it. Now, I would have never checked out that gallery. I wouldn't have. Yeah. She told me about it. I mentioned it to some of my uh, group members. Some of them went. They loved it. Yes. Yeah, well, it was so simple. Well, once again, going back to our earlier conversation of mentors is I've had a couple of guys that said, Travis, two things is we need you to be out and about. If you're in hospitality, especially in a high profile restaurant, a nightclub, whatever, you need to be seen out in the scene. And plus, you need to see things. So I always used to get an R&D budget, always. It was like, here you go, here's $500. You need to bring back all the receipts and it better not all just be Jack Daniels and shots and you know Jägermeisters. <laughs> we wanted, and it shouldn't be the same restaurant where you're greasing your same buddy every time. And I used to have to come back and write, you know, what simple one page reports. Hey, I went to this restaurant, Roger. You should go look at the plateware there. Hey, I went to this restaurant amazing outstanding service you know we should find out what their program is um and then and, and you see stuff but, but not only was i given that we would hand that out to the chef and to the sous chef and so and we figured it all out in the pnl like i i have a hard time i get it you know chicken chicken wings have gone through the roof i get all the logistics supplies paper supplies are more expensive packaging but you know what jerry that you and me and jess sit down in a room with a pnl and do a what if spreadsheet Whatever it costs to deliver the guest experience, whatever it costs, as we've defined it, whatever it costs to look after our people, we'll figure it out on the sheet, engineering. And that doesn't just mean adding 30% to every single plate, right? It, no. means, it means engineering. And like, for instance, I can't believe how many operations we go into where the poor kitchen guys take it in the teeth where they're like, hey, we got to make three more points in our bottom line. And it's all up to the kitchen. I'm like, you know, if we raise the well vodka by 25 cents, we're covered, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah. But yeah, so once again, just knowing what the experience is in the strategy and sitting down to think it through rather than being just knee jerk reactionary, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. So. Do you have any suggestions for uh, smaller properties, independent hotels, resorts, B&Bs? Absolutely. Anyone, anyone in the hospitality industry, any sector from uh, um, a small boutique uh, B&B to the higher end resorts to catering, whatever restaurants is have a plan. And by a plan, I mean, yeah, you got to have a pro forma. Yeah, you got to have the financials that you're going to share with your banker or your investors and so forth. Yeah, that's got to be done. Then after that, though, I always say, how do you what are the mechanics to achieve the numbers? So everyone's worked through the numbers to figure out what they need the ROI to be, how they're going to get their um, return on their uh, uh, capital. All of those things are usually figured out. And then it ends up with a menu and a bad playlist, music playlist. They need to have a plan that maps out the guest journey from the minute they're on their smartphone, looking at your Instagram to they go to your website to actually want to you know, get a little bit more information um, to now they're going to click through to make a, you know, make a reservation to what's, you know, what's the signage look like 10 feet away? Is it all terrible or the windows all disgusting and have like masking tape on from a promotion 10, 10 weeks ago? Um, what's the, what's the hand soap like in both men's and women's bathrooms? <laughs> like they need to have a plan that actually defines the real world, real people, sensory experience and not just brand identity like we work with so many folks that their brand identity is phenomenal they've hired a big agency to come up with the right look the right logo the right colors it matches the narrative of the, of the menu but then you walk in there and the air conditioning is blowing on the back of your neck and cooling off your steak um you yeah. walk in and the poor kid behind the bar who's, who's been charged with like programming the music has got metallica on when it's you know it's a steakhouse it shouldn't be that that's those don't align so i i think that everyone needs to sit down and write a powerpoint and say okay what's the journey what's the stimulus at each point of the journey what are the touch points and then what is what do we want that person leaving, thinking, and telling other people, right? Hey, I went to this restaurant. This was the cuisine. The cocktail program was on point. We had this. Um, they treated my wife so well. You know, they, they knew it was her birthday. They really laid it on. Um, we got a lemon cello shot at the end of the meal. And then they asked us if we needed an Uber. Like, just all the things that you would do as a host, bringing people into your home, right? Like, I don't know of a single... 
a man or a woman who hosts a dinner party at their house and doesn't think about all the details, all right? And then I wish that more operators would sit down. And to your point earlier is COVID changed it. Like people are discerning now. People have higher anticipation and expectations of what they think service should be. Um, the quality that just lands on their plates and all the little tiny moments of, you know, moments of truth. That's the Disney one, moments of truth. Um, you know, and then, because another thing too is I think people can sniff out nowadays too. You can walk into a restaurant and go, wow, like amazing design, good flow. What a beautiful, you know, theater kitchen. And then you get a glass to your table. I'm like, did they get this at a garage sale? Like, yeah. you know, like it's just, you got to think of every single thing that the person, all senses, they got to think of all senses. And, and I, oh, and I think that's, yeah. You got to think of all the senses. What is like, you know, there used to be the rumor back in the day that the casinos pump oxygen in. I'm like, you know how expensive that would be? And that's not what they do. <laughs> but they do pump in scents, though. You can buy, and even the hotels. Marriott has a brand standard on what scents you can pump into the lobby, right? But what they're doing right is they're thinking about how the, how the guest is experiencing things. And, and once again, by experience, all the physical, tactile senses that they are being stimulated, right? So I wish more... I wish more operators would, would give that some thought, right? Okay. Are there any upcoming food and beverage trends that hospitality properties should be aware of? Well, as you know, trends are so, they move so fast these days and social media makes it so, thank thank mm. God for Jess. Because, like here I am, the culinary, <laughs> the, the culinary strategist for our team. And then my brother and I who fight like, Jamie Oliver versus Gordon Ramsay. But then there's Jess going, you guys don't have a clue what you're talking about because that trended out months ago and here's what's trending in. So, you know, thank God we have Jess and our team to kind of keep us in tune with what I call generation next. So what the TikTokers are doing, what's the Instagrammers are doing, what the, the chefs that are dominating those spaces are doing. But one of the things that we are seeing as a whole through the industry is there's this two track um, the two, two trends running parallel to each other. One is people are getting back to comfort food, food that makes them feel good, food that's somewhat indulgent, back to the Julia Childs, like add more butter, add more wine. Um, but it's also real food. People realize now that that's, that's actually not too bad for you in moderation. But running parallel to that is what we call, or what we're, we're seeing the terminology, and there's a whole swack of different vernacular for it, but halo eating, meaning foods that have purpose, foods that have um, functional ingredients, foods that are supposed to be good for me and good for the planet. So it's, it's real tough right now when we're proposing aspirational menus or we're engineering menus. It's tough to get that, that balance where the older generations are back to comfort food. The younger generations are, hey, we want food with purpose. So it's, it's tough to, to balance them. But we see that they're equally important in terms of where they rank on like, you know, hotel scoring and MPS scores and um, surveys and stuff. So, but I think that those two things are trending hard, right? Oh, interesting. Is there anything that I might've missed asking that would be important to the audience, to the listeners? No, man, that was a pretty good list of questions and a pretty, a pretty lengthy conversation. Um, and I, and I think you, you nailed, oh, you know what, actually there is one thing and I noticed it in reading your blogs and going through your podcasts is, and this is also something that Jess is an expert in is um, as part of the guest experience and as part of the guest forward thinking is I think websites and social media and the digital footprint has to be given way more thought. Mm. It's, you know, it's more than just the yellow pages and placing an ad. It's your brand. It's your conversation with your target audience. And I was going through the video you had earlier about white space. Um, and I didn't know this actually, and I wrote it down for Jess because we're working on a number of websites is if I can't find what I'm looking for in three clicks, I'm out. And then you just lost me as a guest. Right. Yeah. right. And so I think that with all that stuff, and I noticed you had so much stuff in, um, so much content, sorry, in your blog and your podcast about a strategy. I saw the word strategy in a lot of times. And the other one was um, about, hey, this is, how is your brand represented? Have you refreshed your brand? How is a brand actually work online? Like, have you as the owner of your business tried to book a reservation in your hotel? <laughs> right? Have you tried to reach customer service? Have you tried? So uh, I think that's marketing in, um, in today's day and age, marketing and branding have become one of the number one priorities, right? And especially now 
with people saying that they can't find talent or they don't know where to reach the audiences or they, they can't, they don't have the budget to invest in TikTok. It's like, well, then I don't know what you're hoping to get out of this. Yeah. If you can't do all these things because that's where those people are and that's how they communicate. And so any more restaurant, I think more hospitality operators need to become a little bit more digitally savvy uh, yeah. and invest in it and not just treat it like it's a yellow pages ad. Right. Good. Yeah. Where can people find out more about your your stuff, what you're doing? Well, we've got a number of new things coming uh, coming out, hopefully by the end of this month. Um, Jess and I have been working hard with a couple of creative teams. So we have Change Network, which more or less is our consulting arm that, that focuses on existing operators coming in and help them re- position their brand, um, doing some audits. And I, I think the word that you used in one of yours, um, ins- inspections. <laughs> inspections um just kind of giving them a bit of an outside set of eyes and you know taking the gloves off putting on the foil and like hey this is wrong this is great this is a reality you need to face so that's change network then we also have a group that's now called um hospitality arts design group so that is where we can if you have if you're looking to intend to let's say um redo all your food and beverage in a hotel let's say or the landscape of your resort if you're looking for a bit of a one-stop source in terms of hey we want the person who comes up with the concept to help us write the menu to help us with the design so it's holistic we have a team of architects and designers we work with so it's a one-stop shop design um, and build and creative kind of group and then we are about to launch, which we're really excited about. Um, and this actually, this is another trend that I can't believe I didn't bring up, but we're about to uh, um, launch a company called Echo Peak Eco Intelligence. Because um, what we see in resorts, in our um, hotel, with our hotel clients, and in a lot in the food and beverage space is everyone's trying to be a little more responsible. They're trying to increase their stewardship practices. Everyone wants to be a little bit more purpose-driven. And we see lots of good visions. We see some incredible intentions, but then usually with food and beverage is where it falls off because people don't know where to turn. They don't know where to go. Um, Usually there's not the same amount of resources and bandwidth given to the food and beverage teams as there is, you know, the hotel operations or facilities and maintenance. So we're going to be launching a company where we're going to help coach the food and beverage departments on how to be more eco-friendly, sustainable, um, some best practices that are out there, uh, things we're coming in in terms of, we see coming in, in terms of trends or other leading markets and stuff. So that's another um, platform we're launching. And then finally, we're launching a, a platform called Apex Fox Performance Coaching. And it's basically for those owners, operators that may not want to engage a consultant because no one likes consultants. Everyone hates the consultants, <laughs> especially if the consultant like ourselves are looking for a retainer um, or if the project is really messy and they look at our dollar value and they're like, well, I don't know. So what we are going to be offering is a coaching platform and it's for two specific audiences. One is for aspiring entrepreneurs in the food and beverage space. So whether it's a food truck or a first-time restaurateur, um, a newly minted hotelier, we're going to help them uh, in terms of coaching. And it's by the hour. It's by the text kind of thing. It's very bite-sized. So people can find out whether it was with what we have, with the insights and advice, whether it actually has value to them and whether there's chemistry between clients and, and consultants um, or coach, I should say. And then the other um, element of that and the other target audience is the C-suites because what we found in a lot of organizations, bigger organizations, is when you're working with the COO, the VP of development, the VP of food and beverage, a lot of times these folks don't have anyone that they can bounce ideas off, that they can have an honest peer review, that they can have someone provide some time to share insights on their plans that they've formulated or to have someone like Jesse and myself go, hey, we can go do some research for you on your behalf if that's what you're interested in because they just don't have the time, their staff doesn't have the time. And so same thing, we'll actually give them small opportunities to say, hey, Travis and Jess, can I get an hour of your time? And would you look at this marketing plan that was submitted? Or can you review this kitchen design that was given to us just as the peer review? And then, and then also just like I said, being able to do research for them. So. That's kind of all we've got coming out at the end of the month. It's a lot, right? <laughs> you know what I'd like to do is down the road a little bit when you've got these up and running is chat again. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I would really like to find out how it's going and then uh, 
see if there's anything we can tie into. Oh, absolutely. It all, well, it's all hospitality focused, right? It's, that's our whole game. We're not trying to be a brand company. We're not trying to be a marketing company. We are strictly focused on hospitality the way that we've defined it over the, you know, over the last hour with you. Right. Excellent. Excellent. Well, so, geez, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking yeah, the time. Right. This, this is, well, actually, thanks for giving us that much time. Yeah, this is great. That was Travis T-Bone Talbot and Jess Freight, and I really appreciate them taking the time to chat. I would encourage you to check out both Travis and Jess on LinkedIn at Travis Talbot and Jessica Freight. Also, make sure to watch for The Change Network, Hospitality Arch Design Group, Echo Peak Eco Intelligence, and Apex Fox Coaching, Performance Coaching. Do you currently make your guests' experience a top priority? Let me know in the comments. We cover more about your facility in the Guide to Owning and Operating a Hospitality Property Successfully book and course. You can find more information at keystonehpd.com. Okay, you're going to have access to this interview for as long as you'd like. But if you'd like to see all the bonuses you would have access to as a member of the Hospitality Property School group, Check out the short video in this episode's post show notes. In the next episode, I will talk about writing a business plan. If you have not done so yet, make sure to sign up for Insider Tips, say hi on social, and join one of our groups. And make sure to get your free copy of the How to Improve Your Hospitality Property Success. You can find all of the links in the show notes. Now, if you like this video, let me know in the comment section below and if you're going to implement any of these procedures. You can support this free podcast by leaving us a review and giving us a five-star rating wherever you happen to be listening to it. Every review helps more people find the podcast at no cost to you. If you know someone who might benefit from this, please feel free to share it. Be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for your attention and let's continue to work together to put heads in your beds. Until next time, have a fun day.